Hi, I'm Molly Barrows, and I've been reporting on some of the saltier stories that surface in Northwest Florida for more than 20 years now. Welcome to my investigative series, Gulf Coast Confidential, where I revisit some of those stories. Now, in this particular story, I'm remembering a horrific crime that happened on Florida's East Coast in my original hometown of Jacksonville, Florida. But this tragedy hit so close to home, I've carried the memory with me wherever I went. In 1982, a man intent on sexually assaulting nine-year-old Christina Christy Wheeler broke into her home the day before her 10th birthday and killed her, her little sister, and their mommy. The victims were not strangers. They had been my neighbors. I had even played at their house a few times before my family moved across town. The Wheelers weren't entirely strangers to the man who killed them either. His parents lived next door to them, and he had seen my little friend and her family enough to know what he wanted to do the night he attacked them, so he made a plan, and he carried out most of it. I learned a lesson early in life that life itself is not guaranteed, and while there is good in this world, there is also evil, and it can be as close as the devil next door. investigative journalist Molly Barrows. For years, I've covered the stories that made headlines in Northwest Florida and all along the Gulf Coast. Murders. Missing persons. And mysteries of all kinds. These cases are far from over for many victims because the full story has yet to surface. Join me for Gulf Coast Confidential, where I dive into the saltier side of the South and expose the lies, greed, and corruption that often weighs down the truth. It's time to turn the tide and get a shot at justice. In 1979, the Wheelers and my family lived in the same neighborhood, an upper-middle-class subdivision called Holiday Harbor with ranch-style homes on large lots mostly built in the 1970s and 80s. The streets have imaginative seafaring names like Blackbeard Drive, Peg Leg Road, and Treasure Cove Lane. The area is minutes away from Jacksonville's beaches and not far from the Intracoastal Waterway. Some of the homes in Holiday Harbor are on waterfront canals with access to the Intracoastal. We lived across the street from the canal front homes on Shipwreck Circle, and the Wheelers lived around the corner on a canal. My dad and I met them walking around the neighborhood, and Mrs. Wheeler was kind enough to invite me over to play with her then-seven-year-old daughter, Christy, who was just a year older than I, and Christy's little sister, Kathy. I remember walking down to their house on occasion and visiting with Christy. She was friendly and smart, and we would sit on the floor of her room, side by side, on our knees, playing with toys. Kathy, who was still a toddler then, would pop in and out of the room giggling and wanting to play with the big girls. Their mom, Nancy, would smile and keep her busy and offer us snacks. With no siblings my own age, I was basically an only child. I remember enjoying their sisterly togetherness and feeling their home was a warm and comfortable place to visit, which I did several times. I was glad someone as sweet and fun as Christy lived close by. In early 1980, in the middle of my first grade year, my family said goodbye to Holiday Harbor and we moved to Palm Valley, Florida, a rather remote community at the time between Jacksonville and St. Augustine. There, my dad found some waterfront property on the Intracoastal Waterway that he and my mom could afford. He was a carpenter and she was an administrative assistant. It was his dream to live on the water, and although our new home was much older and smaller and sat at the end of a dirt road a long way from town, he no longer lived across the street from the waterfront home he wanted. He now owned one himself. 
And I loved it too, practically living in a swamp, and soon realized there were a few dangers I needed to be aware of, like an abundance of snakes and alligators. These were not things I had to worry about at my old home in Holiday Harbor, but I didn't know yet that predators worse than animals stalked all kinds of neighborhoods. Two years later, we had settled into our new home and neighborhood when news broke of the horrific crime. I remember my dad told me what happened, that my playmate Christy, her mom and her sister, had been shot and killed in their home during what appeared to be a robbery and that a neighbor's son had done it. Christy and her mom were found in her mom's room and Kathy had been outside in the hall, shot in the back, trying to escape. I'd never heard of anything so awful before, much less to someone I knew, someone my own age. Back then, the thing that got me the most besides the murders is that he had tied Christie's hands behind her back. The terror, the helplessness she must have felt before she died and her sister too. I just couldn't bear to think about it, so I didn't, or at least I tried not to. The kids at school were all talking about it. I remember swinging on the playground when another girl began describing what the newspaper article said about the shocking murders and that she had also known Christie in a roundabout way. She had sounded excited in that way kids get when they feel they're delivering important information. I remember listening and watching my feet as I kept swinging, wanting and not wanting to join in because I did have something to say, but I wasn't excited about it. So I didn't say much at all, except that it was so sad and that we used to live in her neighborhood. Many years later, I realized my dad had given me a sanitized version of the events. The crime would sometimes randomly pop into my head, and after the internet became a thing, I looked for more information about the crime, and I'm thankful I didn't know then all the horrid details I came to learn as an adult. They were killed on Tuesday night, May 11, 1982. 36-year-old Nancy Wheeler and her two daughters were home alone because husband and father, John Wheeler, was out of town for work. He was a quality assurance manager for Westinghouse Corporation and had been transferred to the company's headquarters in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. His family was planning to join him that summer after school was out. According to local news reports at the time, another neighbor whose children were in a school carpool with the Wheelers called police after they didn't respond to his attempts to reach them. When police first walked into the Wheeler home, they didn't even realize right away it was a crime scene. There was no indication someone had forced their way inside. In fact, carrots and cooking utensils were on the kitchen counter. The table was set for a meal, and the stove was still on, along with a television set in the family room. Walking toward the back of the ranch-style home, police found five-year-old Kathy lying in the hallway leading to the master bedroom. She had been shot in the back, and her head beaten so badly her skull was crushed. In the master bedroom, they found my friend nine-year-old Christy, her hands tied behind her back with rope. She had been shot twice in the forehead and the chest. Nancy Wheeler was also in the bedroom. She had been beaten to death, and her injuries were so severe she was unrecognizable. She was also three months pregnant at the time. It didn't take police long to find the killer. As they canvassed the neighborhood the following day, they met a shipyard welder, 37-year-old Alan Lee Davis, whose parents lived next door to the Wheelers. He was visiting them at the time police were there, and he made statements to the effect that he had been at the victim's home the night before. His father told detectives he had been doing some handy repair work for the Wheelers, but the police were suspicious. They gave Davis a lie detector test, and he failed it. Davis was charged with three counts of murder and convicted on all three charges in February of 1983. He would later say he went to the Wheeler home that night intending to rape and kill Christy, the girl who dreamed of being a nuclear engineer when she grew up, as well as murder her mom and sister. Burglary was a secondary motive if he ever really intended to take anything at all. The only thing Davis stole from the home was a camera. 
Davis was armed with his father's handgun when he broke into the Wheeler's home. He had taken it from on top of his parents' refrigerator while they were out that night. Police say it's the weapon he used to shoot the girls as well as beat Kathy and her mom. They believe he killed Nancy Wheeler's daughters first while their mom watched, and then, out of bullets, he bludgeoned her face and head with the gun so hard, the trigger guard broke along with the wooden grip and the metal frame of the gun's handle. Davis received three death sentences for the murders. He appealed his sentences numerous times, at which time more information was revealed about his background. Davis had prior convictions for armed robbery, attempted armed robbery, use of a firearm during the commission of a felony, and involuntary manslaughter. He had been on probation for the armed robbery charges at the time he murdered the Wheelers. Davis also had a history of child molestation. Some family members said sexual abuse was rampant in the Davis family, and therapists who evaluated Davis determined he was a pedophile who had abused children and had likely been abused as a child. John Wheeler would later call Davis a, quote, deviant animal that should have been permanently caged or executed many years before May 1982, unquote. John Wheeler was there when Judgment Day finally came for Alan Lee Davis, 17 years after the brutal murders of his pregnant wife and their daughters. He was executed in Florida's electric chair on July 8, 1999, while Wheeler, his second wife, and one of Nancy Wheeler's sisters watched. At 6 feet 2 inches tall and nearly 350 pounds, Davis was brought to the execution chamber in a wheelchair. Ironically, his nickname was Tiny. According to witnesses, Tiny didn't have much to say about the process and had, in fact, been reading a cowboy novel shortly before his death. His last meal was a lobster tail, a half pound of fried shrimp, Six ounces of clam strips, fried potatoes, a loaf of garlic bread, melted butter, and cocktail sauce, and he washed it down with 32 ounces of A&W root beer. He finished almost all of it. Davis had no final words, and John Wheeler told reporters at the time he showed no remorse. Wheeler told the Tampa Bay Times that he believed Davis experienced the most pain when he was forced to confront their gaze, and that's saying a lot considering Davis's botched execution. Davis was sedated, but when the current surged through his body, witnesses say he lurched forward against the straps and blood started flowing from his nose and pooling into a saucer-sized stain on his shirt. Even after the current was switched off, his chest heaved about 10 times as if he were still breathing. The state said he was dead before that and blamed blood thinners for the gruesome nosebleed, but others speculate his excessive weight made it difficult to conduct electricity and more power should have been used. The execution brought a firestorm of criticism for the method, and in 2000, the Florida legislature passed legislation that allowed death row inmates to choose death by electrocution or lethal injection. To date, Davis is the last person to be executed in Florida's electric chair. Some called it, quote-unquote, the messiest execution in Florida's history of capital punishment, but John Wheeler described it to reporters as a beautiful day, quote-unquote. Wheeler told the Tampa Bay Times at the time, it wasn't nice. I didn't expect it to be nice. I would have liked for it to be a lot more painful. It was nowhere near the pain he inflicted on the victims, quote unquote. John Wheeler quit his job at Westinghouse soon after his family was murdered, according to news reports. He said he quit for the sake of his co-workers who were having a difficult time coming into the office and seeing him every day, knowing what had happened. He later remarried and he now lives in Merritt Island, Florida. Nancy Wheeler and their daughters are buried together in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, the state where they were originally from. 
I've had people ask me if this case inspired me to become a crime reporter, and the short answer to that question is no. I think I would have done that anyway. But this case was a reality check for me at a young age, a crime that showed the world was not always a safe place, and there but for the grace of God, there went I. My heart goes out to John and Nancy Wheeler's family for their loss for having to endure so much unnecessary pain and torment over such senseless and brutal acts of unbridled violence. The ripple effects can seem to go on forever because the heartbreak is a heavy burden to bear, but life continues for those left behind even when it's hard. Inscribed on Nancy Wheeler's headstone, which is flanked on either side by her daughters, are the words of a poem Christie wrote the year she died. She may no longer be in this world, but for the short time she was here, she made the most of the time she was given. We'll end this episode with that poem she wrote in 1982. Life is wonderful. Life is such a wonderful thing. It is full of spirit and joy. When you start to understand life, you know it is not a toy. By Christy Wheeler. Well, thank you for joining me for The Devil Next Door and Gulf Coast Confidential. You can find this story and others in the series on Spotify and YouTube.